and welcome to the Learning That Sticks podcast. I'm Mark Williams from GiraffePad, the learning platform for learning journeys. In this podcast series, I'm chatting with experts from around the world of learning development, exploring with them their different ideas, techniques and methods for creating learning solutions that truly stick. In this episode, I have got the distinct pleasure of chatting with Emma Spence. And we're going to do something a little bit different this week. And rather than explore a specific sticky learning subject, we're going to have a look at uh, an overview of many of the episodes we've talked about so far and pick out from a learner's perspective some of the key takeaways that Emma herself has taken so far. Emma, thank you so much for joining me. You're very welcome. I'm very pleased to be here, having listened to all 17 of your podcasts so far. I know. I'm honoured and chuffed that uh, I know at least one person has listened to all of them. (laughs) So before we get into, obviously, you've been on a learning journey of your own for the last year or two, um, and you're going to share the the background to us in a moment. So if you give us a bit of your background um, as to how you've got to where you are right now in your learning experience, and then we can start exploring some of the takeaways that we've had from the, the episode so far. Sure, of course. Um, So like, I think, apart from one person on your podcast, I didn't start out in in, uh, training or even coaching. Uh, So my background is um, started in financial. um, And then I started with my husband, um, our own business 20 odd years ago, in the African safari um, business. And then 12 years ago, came to America and opened an American office of the same safari business. And then five years ago was bought by private equity owned luxury um, travel group that um, so we went through the acquisition um, and transfer of, of power as it were to that new business um, so my job has always been money and people um, and that in the last five years has been more about the people than anything else and that's where you and I met um, some three four I can't remember how many years ago when you joined us in San Diego for some coaching training and that's where I discovered that um, coaching was a thing um, and it was what I really wanted to be doing. So I joined um, the training with the Coactive Training Institute, CTI, back in January last year. I did one in-person training um, in Los Angeles, a three-day course full-time. Um, and then I did the rest of my training, my other four um, coursework online and then had six months of certification training where we met weekly. So I've had a bit of um, training in all sorts of um, forums. You know, first of all, your training in person when you came with the team I was working with, the um, the coursework on, well, the in-person, uh, which was very lively and interactive. Um, and the, the three days went so fast, I, you know, I've just wanted more and more. And then it, it transferred really well to Zoom. Um, and that's what, uh, you know, the rest of my training's been so listening to your podcasts has really really resonated every part um because i can see the bits that work really well and why my training works so well um hats off to cti for pivoting so quickly and getting it online and and really making the learning stick it's, it's interesting isn't it because for the last 17 episodes and and for much of my daily life i speak to people on the the facilitation side and the running side and the setting side who've gone through that journey you just described but from their point of view where previously delivering face to face previously uh, having a set way of doing things and suddenly having to make that big change move it to virtual shift through 
and suddenly realize that actually this new world works. So it's lovely speaking to you from your perspective, from the learning side, going through exactly the same journey, just from a slightly mm. different, wearing slightly different shoes, so to speak. Yeah. And I'm aware that I've delivered um, training in the past um, that wasn't very good. Um, and picking up on the things that, you know, really do make learning stick. Um, and it's been great to to pick up and, and, and learn from these, you know, really um, well, well-known, experienced coaches, trainers um, that you've been talking to about how to how to make that difference. Yeah, I mean, I, it's probably a very throwaway phrase, and I'm sure it applies to everything. But learning definitely is something that you can get wrong very, very easily. Um, but what I'm hoping that all of the guests I've spoken to have, have highlighted as well that it's not unbelievably difficult to get it right and to make it sticky and to help people really make the transformational change they need to make. Um, and that's why I'm particularly excited to, rather than continue moving through brand new themes, is a chance to look back on some with you and see the, the key elements that really stood out um, and, and sort of opened your mind up or, or, or turned the light bulb on, shall we say. Mm, mm. So where should we start then? So I think um, it, Sheridan Webb really was the the one that stood out for me in that the design of the training is an art all of its its own. Um, she's not just you know doing. I mean, as she said, three three days to design even start designing um, is is you know her minimum, um, and that that part is so important. Um, and to have someone who's really, really experienced at, at that and, and in the detail. And she's got some great models of, um, you know, the master um, model for, for designing that. Um, it just shows that you, you can't just walk into a room and deliver something off, you know, a script um, and, and how, you know, how you do that. Yeah, and I, I have to be completely honest here. I, I had to eat humble pie as I was listening to Sheridan because... <laughs> I know deep down um, I was one of those facilitators that she refers to often that uh, <laughs> rely on their facilitation skills to, to drag themselves through a day kicking and screaming, thinking on their feet, which I think is still necessary even with a well-designed programme. Um, but Sheridan speaks an awful lot of sense and she also makes it really clear, I think as you point out, that this is a discipline in itself. You know, it's not just uh, um, you need to know how to put some PowerPoint slides together or write a basic session plan. There's a real science behind getting that design right, isn't there? Yeah, and the and you know, <laughs> the, on the other flip side of that, Aaron, you know, Erin was talking about the improv. You know, it's like you've got to, as you say, you've got to have an element in, in there if things change and you know, there's circumstances where you get a different crowd or there's you know something happens, you lose all your power and your slides and everything or you know you, all these things can happen so you have to be able to improvise too but unless you've got your core structure and you really know deep down what you're delivering and why you're delivering it and what you want the outcomes to be even if you're improvising you're not you, that's not gonna that's not gonna stick no and I, th and I think that's something that um I thought Sheridan got across quite well is that mm -hmm. it's not about 
creating a script, is it? To, to, to do some really, really good design work isn't necessarily about creating a script, but it, it puts you on really, really solid foundations to ensure that you deliver the right outcomes by the end of it. And so that you then you then can do the bit that I talk about probably is relying a little bit on your facilitation skills, the bit that Erin deals with so well around improv and being able to be present, to listen, to think on your feet and act accordingly. Mm. You're on really solid foundation when you're doing that rather than the sort of, uh, you know, flapping your wings, hoping that no one notices you don't know where you are and what you're doing or you've got sort of concrete wellies on and you're sinking fast. Yeah. Yeah, and, and leaving in, she talks about leaving enough time for the for the practice, um, but you know have it directed so you know what your outcomes are. I mean, True Black is always talking about the see light light theory, heavy practice, deep reflection. You know that that the heavy practice has to be written into your your training program, um, and and that's you know that's not just leave an hour for practice. That has to be written in about how that's going to work. So that's really important. Well, I'm a a big believer that where the design work can work well as well is to design ways of getting the theory out of the live sessions, get the theory covered off in advance, you know, write good, engaging uh, activities, tasks or, or inspirational resources that you can create that can cover off the theory so that when you've got a facilitator there to run a live session um so that's sort of really valuable time when you're actually together even if you're you're on a zoom or 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 any virtual platform uh and obviously ideally face-to-face when we can do that's where the practice happens i think and that's um that's the bit that true was referring to and actually a lot of people refer to i think is that heavy practice um can't be left i think um, phil mentions this as well You, you phil allen you can't leave the practice to chance no. That has to be designed in, definitely. Mm. And that and that practice is not always obvious. I mean, when you when you think of the people that you spoke to about, um, you know, the game based learning with 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 Terry and the um, uh, who's the, who does the high five, Phil Brown doing the high the high five um, adventure, you know, that stuff where you're completely distracted from what you're meant to be learning. That's the clever stuff. When you're, you know, you're doing something that's really just almost distracting you from sitting, looking at a whiteboard or whatever, which we all know, you know, can get quite dull after you know, a couple of hours. You don't keep people engaged like that. When you really get people out of their comfort zones um, and doing something different, and they they almost don't realise they're learning. Um, I mean, I know that's that's where I learn best. Um, you know, particularly if it's a practical based um, learning. Well, I think they were doing great jobs there. Yeah, well, Phil Brown made a really key point as well as that, and I, I thought this was really interesting. How it's so easy to have a perception of some of the things that he and his organisation might get involved in, like being on a high wire, you know, climbing high up into some trees, like you said, doing this stuff that's quite different, probably to the context of what you might be doing if you're office based, as an example, and mm-hmm. almost certainly be pushing people outside of the comfort zones he doesn't see that as solely the learning. That's simply a means to the learning and they always tie in reflection time. And this is the other key part with that, um, which again is another element I think has come out in a few of the episodes, how easy it is to leave the reflection. as like, well, you know, we just want you to think about this over the course of the next few days. You know, go back to your office, go back to your job, go back to your normal and just find some thinking time. 
And it's almost like saying, you know, have a biscuit with your cup of tea. It's a very English thing, by the way. <laughs> For anyone who's listening who's not in the UK. Um, it, it's just, it's such a mind, it's almost like a throwaway, like a nice to have, rather than recognising that really that's where the, the jigsaw pieces fit together and, and a new picture emerges, isn't it? Yeah, and, that's, and, and almost that's where the story begins. Because it's, you know, and this, I can't remember, I think maybe Jane Rennie who was talking about the, really getting people to um, buy in, the managers of the people in the training to buy in, the leaders, the leaders to have gone through the training so they understand what the people who, you know, their, their staff are going through. They need to be involved in the ongoing training, the reflection, the, the practice, the accountability. And the accountability comes in at that stage too, um, of being able to, going back, remembering each thing. So the reflection comes in immediately, then the reminders of the reflections, and then the continuous training and the and application. Because if you don't carry on applying it straight afterwards, it's just gone. And then you're back to square one and then you come, oh, six months later, run the same training course. Well, I think there's there's two things there, isn't there? Is that the more that you can bring your practice and reflection into your live facilitated sessions, you're actually building you're building the muscle of that kind of learning in there. So you're building the muscle of understanding you have to practice this to get good at it. You know, you are not going to get good at this unless you practice it. And you're not, it's not going to stick unless you reflect really, really well. And there's a particular skill there, you know, that suits some people and doesn't suit others maybe, but that is such a crucial part of that learning process. And so if you build that muscle in the live sessions, and this is why I think that stripping the theory out, there are ways of covering the theory beforehand rather than subjecting people to, you know, two hours of PowerPoint slides or droning voice in, in a live mm-hmm. session. It seems a real waste of the value of having a facilitator or a coach, I think. So build the muscle of practice and reflection so that carries on anyway. But the other part you're talking about sort of operationally and organisation, I think Gary Gormley makes some really good points about this. Um, something that was in my mind that once I'd spoken to Gary and, and thinking about learning that happens in organisations, if you think about certain areas of businesses, so... If a business decides a new marketing campaign needs to happen, it tends to get taken over by marketing and they'll go and manage it. That's their area of expertise and they'll do that. If you're coming to the end of the financial year, the financial team will go and deal with the financial area and and take that over. And as a result, I think a lot of businesses look at the learning function as, well, we need some training, just chuck it. You know, learning will deal with that and they'll tick the box, a bit like you would expect finance to come out of a nicely organised tick box spreadsheet that says, yeah, all the figures are evening up, um, we're all sorted. I think that's the mindset in, oper- in organisations sometimes. They want training or L&D to deliver that. But yeah. we're more, so I think the the learning function is a bit more like a sales function in a, in a business. And I can't remember who to credit with this phrase, but... It always resonated with me when someone said everyone is responsible for sales in the business, not just the sales function. And everybody is responsible for learning in the business. The learning and development function is there simply to bring really great ideas into it, to facilitate it, to lead it, to guide it. But they're not solely responsible for it at all. And so often that doesn't have a voice on a a leadership team. Um, And that's, you know, that's so crucial um, for that to happen. It's just a, it's an outsourced thing that comes in and then it doesn't it doesn't stick and then it gets changed. But depending on who I, mean, I, I don't know, if, I think it might have been someone else's podcast, 
sorry. Um, <laughs> who, <laughs> we don't live in isolation. <laughs> I listen to a lot. Um, that um, you get a change of senior management or, or HR leadership, and, and there's a new phase, there's a new trend, there's a new type of, and they just and they switch. And so anybody who's going through training for any length of time with one business is like, oh, new management new type of training oh they, they want to do something different and and there's no consistency it has to be a, you know a five-year plan it has to be in that budget for the five years not just for that one six-month period or as you say scrabble to the year end to spend the training budget absolutely and it's 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 not just about the consistency as well it's almost it being embedded in working life you know in other words for example practice reflection and feedback is as much a part of the day as the team meeting, uh, as much a part of the day as the the one-to-one with the, the line manager, for example, as much a part of the day as whatever other routines people have in whatever role they might be doing. You know, you work in retail, you know you've got to open your shop in the morning. It's just part of your day. And it almost needs to be seen as, as that, you know, in any given day, I will practice, reflect, and either give or receive feedback to make sure I can continue to improve. And that, that's something that actually really sticks in the training you you gave to us and, and, and my team was that it needs to become everyday language, that it's not, you don't go into coaching mode. You're always in a coaching environment. So everybody gets used to having those conversations and you don't have to go into a room to have the conversation because it's a coaching moment. It just becomes the language of the business and any training should change the language. Um, one of the things we talked about in CTI was that, you know, the, as training as coaches, it was like learning a new language. And the more you got used to it and the more you practiced, you could go and buy a beer from the bar and then you could get have a conversation and then you could start talking about philosophy as you went along and you, you learned the language. It just became every day um, and it wasn't you didn't have to force it. And that's how you want to come out of, you know, training um, series because it's all I to my mind, it needs to be a series. It can't just be a, a one-off, one-and-done. This is really important, and this is what you were, were sort of implying with your description there, is had your CTI experience been just that single weekend at the beginning with nothing else? I mean, I know how much you've worked through, you know, the the, the sort of the, the, the extent and the complexity of the blended learning journey you've gone through. Compare that with just a weekend... Right. You wouldn't you wouldn't be speaking that language now, and no. you'd barely struggle to remember or recall some of the things that went on that weekend. Right. Yeah, and one of the key things of that and that very first weekend, which also plays into a lot of what people are talking about, either you know said or not, is that is the listening, is the learning the levels of listening, really understanding what the outcomes need to be, what the what the the business wants for their training and their, for their people. Um, and I think it was Gary who said about the abdication of responsibility. It's like that you really need to to listen and buy in, and for the for the senior management to to know what they're wanting. Um, so yeah, I mean that was like day one. Listen, really, really listen. And isn't that just as relevant though? So listening at the beginning, so that your filters as the person responsible for the learning aren't thinking, oh, yes, I can just bundle all these models together and run my usual program here. It's like, no, no, this isn't about running a usual program. It's what is needed in the business, what do these individuals need to perform at the level that's required? Mm-hmm. I think even more crucially, and this is something that um, 
it came up in a few of the episodes and it's something I've always been really consciously aware of is this sort of almost expectation that the facilitator, the learning expert that might be designing or running this process is the subject matter expert. And therefore, by default, when you're the subject matter expert, it tends to be you that does most of the talking, most of the leading, most of the sort of forcing the pace, if you like, because people are looking to you for that kind of guidance. I think this element of listening is just as crucial when you're with your participants, you know, the people that are there to change their behavior and transform whatever they're doing. Listen really in depth to um, what they're saying and the experiences they're having, their reflections and their practice, their feelings about how they feel about making this transformation. And then you can tailor and, and yeah, with all of Sheridan's design in mind and Erin's improvisation, you can be light on your feet as you work with these people to help each individual get to where they need to get to. And you can only do that if you're tuned in to what's mm. going on in their minds. If you're stood there with your PowerPoint slides or you're staring at the 10 or 12 slides on your Zoom screen and you're following your script and you're sharing your expertise and you're demonstrating how much you know, you're almost certainly not listening to your participants. And I think that's what worked very well with the CTI training. Um, there were the 20 participants, two front of room leaders, um, a tech host, and then three assistants. So if you've been through the training, you can be an assistant, and I've, I've done that as well. Um, so you've got your two front of room leaders who are really experienced master coaches, masters in listening. And they don't prescribe. They do look at the room of 20 people who are all, from all over the world, all, all sorts of people there, and they read it and it can be done. And I've seen it over and over again that you can have 20 people on a Zoom screen with two people leading it and everybody has their voice, their different way of learning. There's very little prescription. It's a lot about, you know, what do you think? Um, and that that comes from, you know, a you know, great design, but all those other you know, key skills in delivering, training and listening. Now, what's that, you, you just reminded me of something, which I think is, you know, we, we talk about what's gone in the last year and a half with this pandemic, but in the, in the world of learning, I actually think there's been lots and lots of positive outcomes for it in terms of the way it's really made us think afresh about how we can really help our learning stick, to coin a phrase with this. One of the interesting concepts, I mean, you mentioned CTI, okay, and they have this great team around it. Now, that's, I would say that's probably rare rather than the norm, you know, to go to a learning experience as a participant and have access to that much support there is, I mean, it's fantastic, but it's probably quite rare. One of the things that seems to have come out, or a new role that seems to evolve, and you mentioned there with CTI, is this idea of a tech expert, a tech co-buddy or producers I believe they're, they're beginning to be known now mm. which is really only come about with the virtual world where the facilitator doesn't want to have to think about the breakout rooms and and and, and letting someone back in if they've had to drop out in their connection they want to focus on engaging their their people so there's a a, a co-producer there and that really made me think as to why what's the reason that that has only just come about with the world of tech you know is no real difference if you're working with 15 10 15 20 people in a room You've got flip charts, you've got whiteboards, you've got probably five or six groups you break them into, yet you might just rely on yourself as a single facilitator. And actually having two or three uh, additional facilitators there, supporters, people who can run the groups, who can help get the materials ready, the, the sort of efficiency and the productivity in that learning session would be so much greater. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think they always run with, with assistants in, their, in, mm. in person. There were assistants there. 
um, who can you know do the chat room and the parking lot and all of that. But um, yeah, definitely having having that extra. See, when you're when you're really delivering, you're that's all you're thinking about. You're engaging fully with with and not worrying about anything that's any of the chaos that's happening behind. <laughs> Yeah, Which often but, but, there is. That <laughs> even even if you're fully focused on the engagement, like you said, if a group of fifteen, you're you're not necessarily going to be in tune with all fifteen at the same time. So your mm-hmm. your co-pilots, for want of a better phrase, um, can be tuned in and and making sure that that facilitator in that moment when they're getting excited about a certain area of the subject isn't missing mm-hmm. something key that's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it kind of brings us around full circle to how learning is viewed, doesn't it? And how important it is to be able to justify having that kind of resource to to run your learning session. Right, right. Because it is an investment. It is an investment. It, it makes me think about, um, you know, when you were talking about having more people in the room, just how different people learn. So how you cover in a, in a you know, series of training programmes the different the different ways people learn. I mean, I know how I learn and what works best for me, but that's going to be very different from you know my colleague either side of me. Um, so, how do you build in um, and make that work for everybody? Do you do you send them to the, the to the program that you think suits them best, or do you, does can the program cover everybody's different type of learning? And I guess that's a question back to you because you've got more experience in that. I I think this is, there's almost two parts to this. There's getting too narrowed down to say there's very prescriptive individual learning styles, which has is, is almost been debunked now. But there's a recognition that there are preferences and preferred ways of learning. My view on this is that the whole learning journey needs to be very, very blended with a variety of different ways of learning. So it's not just about a facilitated workshop, that there is, there is engineered social learning in there. So we're not just relying on it happening. So there's accountability groups, for example. There's mm-hmm. individual coaching. There's self-directed tasks. There's resources to create and share with the group. There's a, a myriad of creative things that can be done. And I think in recognising for all of those, you create different paths to each of them so that different preferences can be met. But also, it's not always such a bad thing that people learn in a way that's not their preferred style. And that's the, the classic nature of pushing someone outside of their comfort zone and nice. realising they are capable of learning in a different way and they get different inputs from that. I think a more effective way almost sometimes is to look at it as knowing that there is a, a well proven path to good quality learning which is around this nature of experiential sessions where people experience things lots of opportunity to practice lots of opportunity to reflect and lots of opportunity to to put things into place and get feedback through that process now there's all sorts of models and names out there but those core elements and this is why i keep coming back to this you know i almost think rather than calling it learning statistics we should have called it light theory heavy practice deep reflection because i think <laughs> I in, in a way <laughs> yeah but it just it encapsulates everything that's yeah. in there as to how, how you might want to learn um and so yes you you can build lots of different methodologies in there and i think it was um it was on the episode with uh erica and Haley from quantum rise yeah. where the suggestion came up you know let's say we're running a session virtually and you have someone who really gets a lot of value from reflective learning versus someone who really wants to be able to just throw it at each other and play around with it it's really not wrong to put someone on their own in a breakout room. Yeah. 
you know, the idea that you might, you know, I'm picturing myself in a room back in the day with face to face, and you got you got ten people in front of you. I don't think once did I ever put one person in a group on their own. <laughs> Unless they're on a naughty step, maybe. Not, of course not. <laughs> um, you know, it was always in groups. You know, and that's yeah. probably my influence in there, thinking I want people to really discuss this and mull it over. And actually, there's yeah. almost certainly been people in all the sessions I ran who might have just preferred at that moment to go away and do some self-reflection on their own, potentially even practice on their own, to go for a walk on their own and let all the pieces sync together. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be honest, not once did I do that. Never was it less than two people in a group. No, it wouldn't even have occurred to me. And but the, you know, in the same nature of Zoom, but it's it makes like, sense. You know, you, you almost feel like you're sending someone into this sort of technological <laughs> vacuum by putting them in a breakout room on their own. But actually, it might be the thing that works absolutely best for them. Mm. Um, and I, you know, and I think the longer programs would benefit a lot from helping people explore how they'll best learn through a program, um, and and actually having that up front for their benefit as much as anyone not even just for the facilitators benefit but for their benefit to say you know you are only going to get benefit from this if the learning really works for you yeah so what's going to work what do you need to engineer for yourself and what do we need to do to help that happen absolutely best for you that doesn't by the way mean that you wouldn't really use guided practice that you wouldn't guide reflection for those people that seem quite lively and out there wanting to be in groups that wouldn't mean you would sort of uh, alleviate them from the responsibility of reflecting <laughs> right. um but there's the, no hiding the, yeah no hiding but you know recognize that when they might be doing that they're out of their comfort zone it's stretching them a little bit mm. um and just being aware of that i'm thinking there's that's a really good place um for the practice the practice room you know, Phil, when, when Phil's got you in the practice room or something, that's a really good place to experiment with that, you know. Do I need to reflect? Do I need to practice? How, how does that practice work? Can I try things that I've never tried before, but in this really safe environment? Um, give it a go. See what happens. You just never know. And it's very rare that you get that opportunity because you're always on show. Someone's always kind of, you know, I don't know, not judging, but, you know, you've got your own judges and saboteurs sitting on your shoulder, so... Um, yeah, that that safe place to practice. You know, I really enjoyed listening. You know, talking with Phil around the notion of practice because what Phil has done and is doing is bringing to the forefront, I think, and really pushing this message that actually a lot of facilitators deep down probably get and understand and buy into, but have have got too caught up in all the theories and the models to do that. And I love the idea. I mean, Phil uses quite a simple phrase sometimes, like put practice first. Mm. And it, it was a bit, talking to Phil was a bit like the conversation I sometimes have with people I meet who talk about different destinations in the world, like just friends in social conversations say, oh, we went to this amazing place back in the 80s. It was a, and I'll be listening and going, that sounds amazing. And maybe two hours later, it'll suddenly click in my head, hang on, I've been there. I went there two years <laughs> after that. And listening to Phil about two days later reflecting, and actually you might remember this with the, the sessions we did with you and your team, is whenever I run coaching sessions, the first thing I did was get people to walk off in pairs and coach each other. Before we talked about anything as to what coaching was or how it worked or anything, it was go and have a practice with no theory, yep. no input or anything. Um, and it sets something like that sets the scene so well because people come back going, well, this was happened and this happened, this happened, and suddenly you're into the conversation about what might do to improve it and then go out and practice again. 
Mm. And it's such a crucial part of it. And it's so easy to get lost with the fancy models and theories that can be overly uh, presented mm. as the magic tool in the way. Yeah, the, the Mark Williams walk and talk has been fully embedded in, in our <laughs> business ever since. You know, what a great way to have a conversation. Um, it's like awkward conversations with kids in the car. You know, they always happen in the car because everyone's facing outwards, not at each and, other. And uh, apart from the odd time you're reversing into a parking space, you're heading forwards. And that's yeah. the psychological aspect. You're you're walking forwards and talking forwards. That's the idea mm. behind those in my mind. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's reminded me of another training course that I did years and years and years ago, um, which I've kind of adopted as as a very loose um, structure for any training that, you know, there's little bits of training that I've done sort of in sales. And that was the fear of flying course that I did with British Airways back in when in my 20s, because I was working, I was having to fly from for work and I hated flying. Um, and their, their day course was based on First of all, the practicalities of why planes stay in the air. So all the kind of, you know, that all the technical stuff, um, you know, how the wings flex, all of that stuff. So if you're if you're if you're in a sales environment, you know, you're actually, you know, what you're selling. And then they had a big session on psychology about psychology of fear um, and psychology of you know, you know, what to do, how fear peaks, you know, and, and that all plays into that, all the psychological barriers for sales, you know, your your fear of rejection and um, all, all those different parts, which, you know, was fascinating. And then they stick you on a plane and you go up in the air and you and you have all of this, you have you have the, the guys who've given you all the theory, the ones flying the plane, but they're, so they're talking to you the whole time and you're up in the air. And it, it was fascinating about how the brain works, what you hold on to, when you're then actually doing it it's fine talking about how to drive in theory and you can do all of that but once you're actually driving it's a very different thing all the things to think about and the things that I mean that of course was quite a long time ago and the stuff that I still think about from that course that come back to me when I get on a plane or when I'm talking to somebody about it about you know just mixing up the practical the psychological and then they're just doing it and feeling it and experiencing it so important. And I'm not going to ask you to tell us what year that was running. <laughs> but that's the very epitome of sticky learning, isn't it? That to this day, that resonates with you. And when I was listening to you there, you obviously went through a very, a very practical, a very powerful program around fear of flying. But what you're doing now is you're, you're sharing your story of that. And you were talking about how the brain works and what it holds on to. And this is something I found really came out strongly from the episode with, um, with Sarah Jane and David. Yep. When they talked about the, the sheer compelling power of story and how story helps us form our narrative around something. And, and, and the brain sticks to that and helps it really, really resonate. Mm. Um, and how so much training can be really quite dry and quite functional and quite... Um, technical or theoretical when we've got this perfectly you know that you know most of us were lucky enough to have stories read to us when we were kids or read books from we were really young and those stories are, you probably still resonate with us now no. you watch a good film and it's a story that sticks with you isn't it or you you know we can all recount a certain book that really stuck with us there's something about the story that's in there um so most of us have the ability to bring that across into our learning sessions and help our yeah. learners form their own stories to really put the glue into that learning yeah 
and that and that feeds into sales training as well. You know, the story for as a salesperson. Yeah. Very powerful. Yeah. And do you remember? I don't know if you remember. This is way back to the very very first episode with Rod, and how. Um, a, I, I don't know if it was the actual drama teacher or someone who's running the school play brought in a minor bird in. And as a result of that being so, so off the wall and so different in that experience, um, all of the songs, all the storytelling within that particular play are stuck to him to now. He can recite the words, he can recite the songs. Yeah. Um, because something really stuck and it formed a narrative. And when I started listening to that, I now have a story to share with other people that I'm not going to forget about this minor bird. <laughs> I remember. I just remember Rod having sort of an epiphany while he was riding his horse, which was part of that as well, which really stuck with me because I had an image of him, um, which kind of you know just came out of the blue for me. It's like, oh, you're out riding your horse. Okay, I wasn't expecting you to tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> the stories people tell it sticks, you see. <laughs> yeah, and then there's you know this, <laughs> and this might sound silly, and I know we've talked about this before, but you know when I listened to Scott Hunter, I could listen to him all day because. I liked his voice. I liked the way that he was delivering what he was saying. And that must come into, you know, when when people go into a training course, they, there must be something about liking the person that is delivering the training. If there's something that grates or you think, oh, I mean, a lot, I'm sure a lot of people do walk in. And um, <laughs> who was it? Who um, was it? James Hudson, who was talking about the um, when he had people who came and who thought they knew everything and then he'd um, kind of slap them down a bit before I think that was true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it just you know if you if you don't immediately like the person and you switch off from you, from the person delivering the training how do you get the people back um, when they've switched off from you is it about being likable or is it about the, the subject being interesting it's interesting. Right. This is a really interesting area because I, for many years as a facilitator, thought the likability factor was really key and put a lot of effort in the beginning of sessions to really engage with the individuals and get them feeling comfortable so I could stretch them and challenge them. Um, but it was listening to True, who he, one of the points he made about being a great facilitator, he said, was being brave. And being mm. brave enough to push people out of their comfort zone to the point where they might almost not like you because of the position you're putting them into, knowing that that was doing them a really big favour and helping them start to... I think the example he was giving was it, it opened their mind up to the need to learn and change because he had to push them so hard and give them a kind of feedback that was probably landing quite uncomfortably in front of their peers. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, I think there's a, there's a that nice balance is, I think if... If you join a Zoom or walk into a room and you are instantly alienated from that facilitator, I think even the most emotionally intelligent of us will probably, the, the shutters will come down. Um, you know, you just want to, you probably want to turn the video off. You want to nod like you're there or whatever. Um, it, it's hard for us not to, isn't it? Um, yeah. But I think if the likability factor is, is so great, do people get too complacent from a learning point of view? You know, learning... I, I can't believe any form of learning. When you're really learning something that should be transformational, there shouldn't. I can't see how any of that could really be easy. If it's easy, the, the likelihood is you're not stretching yourself enough. It's mm-hmm. like you know, the physical examples, analogies of this are great, aren't they? If you're lifting some weights or you're going for a run, at the end of it, nothing, and the next day you're not stiff and you're not out of puff when you get back mm-hmm. when you finish the session, 
it's not really done any good, has it? Uh, and it's the same for any uh, brain training, any you know skills transformation, behavioural change, mindset change. It needs to be distinctly uncomfortable to form the new patterns, doesn't it? So yeah. if you're created that kind of relationship where it's incredibly comfortable, does your feedback, do your challenges truly land or do they just sort of wash off a little bit um, behind that likability? I'm not saying I have the direct answer to that. I think... Mm. Um, I think True made a really good point that a great facilitator will take the risks necessary to yeah. make someone uncomfortable enough to make sure they learn, but will do it. Um, because it, the other other point he was making, wasn't it, is to be... Um, okay. Yeah, it was, it was, like, was it service-led or care-led? It's like at the heart, you you have the care for this individual at the heart of everything you do. But knowing, it's, it's like being a parent, isn't it? It's knowing sometimes you, you have to make the hard decisions, you have to say no, you have to... Um, you know, not allow your child that treat or to do something because you know it's the right thing for them to learn in that way. Whereas deep down, you just want to give in something, give them a big hug. Mm. Um, and I, that, it's a similar balance, as a, I, I guess, as a facilitator and the coach. I think you alluded to it in the, I mean, when you were saying, you know, it's great to get the, you know, the hundred percent feedback, yeah. but then if it's not, if it's not making any difference, they're probably not going to ask you back. Yeah, you'll be exactly. wondering why, why, why. <laughs> And how interesting is that obsession with these feedback sheets and 100% feedback? Is I, I, I wonder a little bit. It depends on the question. If the question says, do you feel utterly drained? Have you practiced within the inch of your heart? You know, have you reflected so deeply that your brain hurts? Then, yeah, five stars. But more likely that feedback is, you know, have your objectives been met? You know, was the room at the right temperature? You know, did the facilitator engage you? And frankly, it's a bit like, you know, if I come back from a really hard run, uh, you know, for the benefit of our listeners, I won't swear, but I'm somewhat, I'm effing and blinding, and I'm I'm cursing running, and I'm hurting, and I'm sweating. Never doing it again. No, I'm not saying God, I love running. It's the most wonderful <laughs> thing in the world. <laughs> Give it a five star rating on TripAdvisor. <laughs> I don't do that because I'm saying to myself, "Sob that." I'm not doing that anymore. Um, but also, you don't know after that run whether that's made the difference in six um, months' time towards your marathon goal. You know, it's really, really not really about. Happen. No. what happens at the end of that day it's like ask that questionnaire six months later and see if it's working and that's where the level three level four feedback kicks in where when it's not really feedback it's about reflections so that learners say i have got to the end of the journey where i wanted to get to and mm-hmm. and I've, I've i've achieved the performance you know i can now perform in a way i wanted to perform or, or elicit these behaviors in a way that either have exceeded my expectations or at least met them and i don't have to think too deeply about doing it and then great you're you've achieved something but like you said that's not going to happen mm. at the end of the session and I think you you know your your product the giraffe pad is is so brilliant at doing that follow-up afterwards and that being able to stay in in that mode of training and stick with the your family as it were for that you went through that training with because for me that was really important and I've made a lot of connections through that and practice with people outside of any of the training um, and I know that when, you know, you did the coaching with, with us, it was the follow on. It was the access to be able to call you and say, I've now got this situation. I'm not quite sure how to deal with it. Or what do you think of this? Or how, you know, if I put this together, what do you think? It was having that follow on that meant that it wasn't just a one and done um, course. Well, I mean, you've worked in travel for much of your life, Emma. Um, and I know this analogy came up in the Jane Rennie episode when we were talking about learning journeys. And 
the, the, the difference between a city break, two to three days, you know, going to Rome, going to New York, going somewhere at Cape Town, somewhere amazing, is brilliant. And we all love to do those kind of things, especially if we could travel greenly. Um, but the, li- the long-lasting impact of them are slightly less. You know, unless you end up moving and living in that city, it's just a really, really nice weekend, isn't it? Yeah. Whereas around-the-world journey, around-the-world trip done properly has a lifetime impact on someone. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how learning should be viewed. And if you think about it, you, you're still living, you're still eating, you're still breathing. So, you know, you go for a learning intervention, you're still working the next day, the next week, the next month, but you can carry on learning. And, and it should be seen as an entire journey that is mm-hmm. like a learning, uh, like a round-the-world trip. And if you think of a round-the-world trip, certainly I mean, I'm talking about a day when we could travel, obviously, yes. <laughs> dating this episode in the, in the pandemic as we talk now. Um, but, for example, you didn't just take flights. You know, flights might be your equivalent of your live face-to-face sessions, your virtual sessions. They're the big, chunky bits of travel, which mean you're moving on to a new adventure or a new culture, a new country or continent even. But in between that, you're taking taxis, you're taking boats, you're taking trains, you're taking tuk-tuks. You might be walking or hitchhiking or trekking. There's all sorts of modes of, of transport that form that journey, that enable you to continue that journey through there. Uh, and I think that's what a blended learning, learning journey is about. It goes on for a long time. It has numerous different mediums that you use to keep moving forward to get to where you want to go to. And it has a lifelong impact on you because it truly lands, as opposed to... <laughs> turning up for a one-day, half-day course and nothing ever happened before or afterwards is like your city break. Mm. Yeah, and, and when you're travelling around the world, you, you stop and ask for help and direction as well. I mean, that's the, that's the other bits that come in, the, the little side bits, the, you know, the podcasts that you listen to about stuff, the, the books you read, the, you know, the conversations you have along the way that can you know, shape you know, the way you think, how you train, you know, and sometimes... Add stuff that you think, oh, I never thought of that. I can, I can weave that in now. Yeah, you're basically absorbing experiences all the time, and and this is the other part that makes a learning journey work really well. If you think about around the world trip, sure, you might have used a, a travel expert to help you book it. You know, if you were very young, I'm thinking about when I was 18, you might have had a helping hand from parents to pay for some of it. Yeah, but actually, then when you do it, you're on your own. Or obviously you might be traveling with some friends or whatever, but essentially you're responsible for keeping that journey moving forward. And that's the key for a learning journey as well. As a facilitator is not the ultimate person responsible. The facilitator is there to, to throw good content in, to guide, to nudge, to cajole, to give feedback, to challenge. But the person who takes that learning journey is the learner themselves, just like mm. the person taking the round the world trip. It's the difference between someone watching a round the world trip on YouTube versus going out there and doing it themselves. Yeah, 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 and when, and that feeling of coming out of a training session and wanting more, wanting to go and practice, wondering when the next bit is, you know, the 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 slight addiction to it. <laughs> Yeah, but, but also taking responsibility for saying, well, I'm going to take what I've taken there and we're going to apply it over here. You know, I know I can catch a train between two cities. Now I'm going to try uh, hitchhiking or I'm going to try trekking or I'm going to try taking a boat between two places. It's still a means of travel, but no one's told me how to do it. I'm just going to go and learn how to do it. And taking that responsibility stretches that ability. You're still moving forward, but trying something different each time. Yeah. We, we, we're, we're digressing slightly into our shared passion for travel. We're still going off into travel. <laughs> 
Listen, I think, Emma, I am pretty confident we could carry this conversation on for a number of hours. Yes. Um, but what I want to do is show my real appreciation for, for you taking the time to share some of your insights from the learner's perspective. I found it fascinating listening to you, drawing out key parts from those. I've been so sort of tunneled vision, if you like, of talking to experts in learning about their magic source and the things they do. Mm. Um, it's great to put the issues on the other foot and, and listen to from the learner's perspective and the learning journey you've been through and how you're going to bundle that all together into the great work you're going to do as a coach in the future mm, thank you that's no, been great to talk it through really enjoyed it emma it's been an absolute pleasure now i think people might want to connect with you after this learn more about your future as a co-active coach and all the exciting plans you have where, where can people find you uh on linkedin or yeah the best place to find me is on linkedin yeah um, so you know, all my details are there um, Emma, just Emma Spence. Um, yeah, I'd be happy to talk to anybody. Contact me through there. And um, yeah, I'm putting together some training programs for, for teams, new managers. Um, and also I'm a, I'm a qualified coach. So I'd you know, love to talk to anybody who has any interest in that. Fantastic. And um, I'm going to do my very best to tempt Emma on again in about another 15 to 20 episodes to do another review of all the next episodes we, we come through on the Learning That Sticks podcast. So I just want to say thank you to everyone for listening so far. We have plenty more episodes in the pipeline to come. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe on your podcast app of choice and give us a great rating. If you'd like to connect with me, you'll find me on LinkedIn and our website is www.giraffepad.com. And I want to say a big thank you for listening so far. Bye for now.